I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hi, I'm Adam Schatz. Our guest today on the LRB podcast is Kianga Yamada Taylor. Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership, From Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Kobami River Collective. As a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times and a columnist for TheNewYorker.com, she has emerged in the last few years as one of our most important commentators on the political economy of race, class, and gender in America. She's an activist intellectual, an academic who hasn't forgotten her background as an organizer, which gives her work not only its analytic power, but a rare urgency. When I see her byline, I put everything down because I want to know what she's thinking. Kienga has been kind enough to take time out of her very packed schedule to discuss the extraordinary events in America and the world of the last few weeks, the uprising against police brutality and other forms of injustice that erupted after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We're also going to talk about the history that preceded this moment, a history to which her own work has been an acutely illuminating guide. Kienga, welcome to the LRB podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Very glad to be here. You're in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I just read that Daniel Outlaw, the police commissioner in the city where you live, has announced a moratorium on the use of tear gas and apologized for its use in a protest in early June. That's Danielle uh, Outlaw, and she is the new police chief. I think she just got here in January. She and the mayor, Jim Kenney, had a press conference yesterday. It was a very curious affair because they essentially admitted to lying weeks earlier. The police in Philadelphia uh, shot tear gas at a peaceful demonstration that um, had taken over a highway, but uh, it was an act of civil disobedience. And the police lied and said that people threw rocks at them and were threatening officers. And not only were there witnesses, uh, also members of the clergy, also reporters who denied this, but there was also, as has been the case in across the country, videotape, lots of visual evidence that uh, this wasn't the case. And so, you know, the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer today is that Outlaw says that, uh, which is, of course, a brilliant last name for a police chief, Uh, says that it was unjustifiable to use tear gas, even though one would think that she and the mayor were involved in the decision-making process to decide to use tear gas. But that there also is a legacy of that 
uh, kind of deflection in Philadelphia politics as well. Uh, Mayor Wilson Good in 1985 uh, was mayor, first black mayor of Philadelphia when a bombing device was dropped on a house of uh, an organization called MOVE, which is a black countercultural group based in West Philadelphia. And the, the bombing killed uh, 11 members of MOVE, including several children, and, and it destroyed four city blocks. And Wilson Good also says he was not involved in the decision to drop a bomb there. I, re- I remember when the MOVE bombing took place because my mother is, is uh, originally from Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And uh, Wilson Good, like uh, Danielle Outlaw, is African-American. Right. And, and this was, of course, held up as a sign that, Amer- that America was making enormous progress. There were all these uh, black mayors who had be- been elected starting in the 1970s, and yet the same kinds of brutality took place under their watch. Absolutely. But it, and it's, you know, Good recently came out uh, in an op-ed from The Guardian, actually, and or published in The Guardian, and apologized uh, yet again for this act that he also says he had nothing to do with. So, you know, in Philly, people in charge apparently have nothing to do with uh, the police acting in outrageous, illegal, and brutal fashion, but they have been forced to uh, account publicly for that, I think, because of the ferocity of the movement right now. Of the protests, yes, absolutely, and actually, you know, when when you mentioned this uh, incident of, um, of of tear gassing, and it reminds me of a quote from uh, from hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by the social psychologist uh, Kenneth Clark mm-hmm. when he writes of um, urban revolts and says that we have to understand that the supposed lawlessness of these events is a response, in fact, to the lawlessness of the police. Well, I, it's the lawlessness of the police. It's the dysfunction, ineffectiveness, unwillingness or inability of the state in general uh, to respond in meaningful ways to the sense of desperation, of hopelessness, right. of, of loss. Uh, and I think what is interesting about these uprisings and protests is that it's not confined just to African-Americans, but it actually is representative of the, the feeling and the mood of uh, a much broader and wider swath of the the population, which makes it so dangerous to the political status quo. And we're going to talk about this, about the the broad kind of multiracial dimension of the of the protest movement. But you know, I want to start by quoting uh, from a piece that you published in the New York Times on April thirteenth, a month into the COVID nineteen crisis, and it, it, the piece appeared under the headline "Do We Need a New mm-hmm. Protest Movement?" and you wrote. Tens of millions of citizens sit at home awaiting meager checks that may reach them by August. Countless people endure the bewilderment of navigating call centers that often fail to connect them to unemployment benefits. Donations to food banks have fallen while need rises. The inept federal response slows the arrival of aid, forcing people to defy the social distancing necessary to keep the virus at bay. Under normal circumstances, such wanton disregard for the government from the government, might prompt protests. But these are far from normal circumstances. Instead, public demonstrations are almost impossible. So what can we do when it seems there is nothing we can do? Now, six weeks later, of course, everything changes. (laughs) And the idea that mass demonstrations were obsolete because of COVID, which was an idea, actually, that was 
encouraged and promulgated by mm-hmm. by people like Bill Gates was shattered. Mm-hmm. And and so you you here you are you've written extensively on questions of racism, class oppression, injustice for for years. But it's not every day that anger over oppression explodes into a mass upheaval, particularly in the midst of a pandemic where people are afraid to be physically proximate to one another. Mm-hmm. So suddenly we're looking at the prospect of, you know, Trump unraveling the racist in chief whose entire presidency was inspired by his hatred of the black president, Barack Obama. So I'm wondering, you know, this is a month before. This is in April. I mean, we were all kind of wondering, will we ever be in the streets again? Right. (laughs) Were you surprised? Did the scale take you by surprise? Oh, I was shocked. I'm still shocked. There was a march of hundreds of people in Philadelphia two days ago um, to protest this racist Columbus you know, discovering America uh, statue in South Philly that has become a flashpoint because the police, while they are tear gassing and attacking Black Lives Matter uh, protesters, uh, have coddled and and supported these white thugs in South Philly armed with baseball bats, hammers, and golf clubs who are poised to attack Black Lives Matter uh, protesters. And so hundreds of people organized themselves to march on this statue to denounce racist vigilantism. And so, yes, I continue to be stunned by the longevity of the, the, the protests. I mean, this has been going on for a month now, and it is a, a welcome development. And I think that, you know, in some ways it's driven by the kind of ineptitude that I was describing in April. And I think I've heard several times now from young people who are at the center uh, of these protests that, you know, if we're going to die anyway from this pandemic, then I'd rather die fighting than die in my apartment alone. And I think the ineptitude from the state on the one hand, and then the brutality of the state on the other, I think has left people feeling that there actually is no other alternative. There's nothing that we can really do. Because even, you know, I think in some of the the local uh, elections, we've seen people who identify with the movement, progressives, uh, challenging establishment uh, Democrats, at least on the Democratic side uh, of these races. Look at Elliot Engel being defeated. Oh, God, I know. Or or my state senator, Jabari Brisport, who is uh, a, is black, gay and a Democratic socialist. So there's there's that. But on the on the national level, you know, Joe Biden's response to the uprising was three hundred million dollars for the cops to do diversity training cameras you know, and if that's the response at the kind of at the top of the Democratic Party ticket, then of course you have to keep protesting. <laughs> you know, it's it's like the politics, the the political establishment um, has yet to catch up or fully comprehend uh, the mood that is in the street. So it still lags behind. The, the The movement is talking about defund the police. Right. It's not talking about train the police. And part of that is because 2015 is so recent. So this the same people have lived through 
the piecemeal reforms. They've lived through body cameras as some breakthrough innovation um, that would compel the police to stop brutalizing people. They've lived through policing commissions. They've lived through all of the reforms that the Democratic Party tries to now uphold as somehow original, innovative, um, and as the solution to the problems with policing. And it's not good enough. And for them, it's just, it's too little too late. It's absolutely. And it's, a, in a way, it's a, it's a reminder of what, you know, what we saw in the 1960s with the the Kerner Commission and how uh, little actually uh, well, follow-up Well, these are the same was. solutions they've been recycling for 50 years. You know, I spoke and, recently you know, to no one's um, the poet and novelist uh, Tulani Davis, who's herself a veteran of, of the movement of the 60s and 70s. And she told me that what had moved her about the protests was the intensity of the sorrow and the rage. And mm-hmm. she said that it made people of her generation able to, to cry again, that they'd somehow almost forgotten they, they, they mm-hmm. could no longer do it. And and to see these young people uh, responding, not just with horror, but with action, was uh, tremendously inspiring for people of her generation. Is that part of what, what you're feeling? You have a, I mean, you have a background as an organizer. You've been involved in politics for some time. I, is that something that really impresses you? Oh, that's, you know, I get asked all the time, um, do you have hope? You know, because it feels like we're just repeating the same things over and over again. And the rebellion is the most hopeful thing that, I mean, it was pretty hopeful in, in 2014. With uh, the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But it didn't, it didn't break out, you know, I mean, really the protests were, there were revolts in uh, Ferguson and in Baltimore and then elsewhere, there were solidarity protests, but there weren't really the protests weren't centered at the or focused on what was happening in that particular locality. And so I think the breadth of this emergent movement or the reemergence uh, of this movement uh, is absolutely inspiring. And the maturity of the, the politics because of the experiences in 2014 and 2015 uh, is also hopeful because this will the dynamics were different then because you had a politically skilled White House that understood that part of politics is creating the illusion of progress. And so you can put together a commission, you can put activists on the commission, you can do all these things that look busy and create the appearance that something is happening, you know, when not much really is happening. But it makes people feel like uh, they're being effective. And the White House essentially then had an open door policy for activists, you know. And so none of that exists uh, now. So the, the methods of co-optation are, are much more convoluted and, and difficult. Um, would, would, you, would you say, would you say um, also that when, when Black Lives Matter um, first emerged, uh, you had in the White House a man who was perceived, at least, to be sympathetic to its mm-hmm. demands, uh, nation's first black president and so on. And so Obama, you know, in, in part by virtue of just who he was, in part by virtue of his, you know, tremendous oratorical skills, had what you might call a so- he had soft power. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the people might have been disappointed with him. They might have felt betrayed. They might have felt abandoned. They might have thought, 
you know, why can't he address our concerns? Why does he, you know, retreat mm-hmm. uh, from engaging with um, questions of anti-black oppression? And yet, because he had that soft power, it was enough perhaps to, to, to if not neutralize the movement, but to contain its spread and contain its force. Now you have someone in, in office who is perceived rightly, not just as someone who isn't sympathetic, but as an enemy. Well, he's a white supremacist who exactly. has described Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement, as terrorism. <laughs> right. So doesn't that, doesn't the fact that he's in power also partly explain why we see this eruptive force and why it's spread and why it's acquired such momentum? Oh, no, for, for, cer- for certain. I, th- I think that uh, Trump has been a provocateur in this sense, and and also the actions of the Justice Department, which I think uh, some of the first decisions that were made initially under uh, Jeff Sessions uh, was to tear up all of the consent decrees that had been made between Eric Holder's Justice Department and police uh, departments across the country. And so, you know, there we can debate as to whether consent decrees actually uh, lead to uh, the, the the reformation of of the police, but to essentially say that you won't engage even in the fiction of trying to respond to this overwhelming desire to stop police brutality, and in you know in several cases where Trump has either joked about uh, the police beating up people suggested that the police uh, beat up people, then you've really been left with no other means except to protest. And so obviously the demonstrations that we saw at the end of May and the beginning of June were something more than just typical protest against police brutality. But I think that it was an expression of a kind of pent-up rage Mm -hmm. at the way that almost... The George Floyd video, of course, is so disturbing because of the casualness with which Derek Chauvin just kills George Floyd as if he were killing a cockroach. It barely seems to uh, uh, be apparent. Well, he's got his hand in his pocket. He's just kind of hanging out on this guy's neck as he's begging for his life. And so there's something about the casualness, the white supremacist in the White House, within the context of this overwhelming Black death because of COVID and the federal government's casual, I mean, you could call it inept, and part of it has been inept. Right, it kind of, a kind of a combination of ineptitude and callousness. Yeah, and so the, between the two of those, um, I think that it was fueling not only the sense that well, if we don't do something ourselves, nothing will happen. But that it, it literally feels like Black lives absolutely do not matter, <laughs> right? Um, in this country, and that that's it's infuriating. It's right, you know. And I think that's what people have reacted to. You know, one of the really extraordinary things about the movement is is the expansion of the sense of the possible the kind of the imaginative mm. aspect of the movement. You've written that, that, you know, that no movement begins with the sense of what is possible, right? You begin right. With, with, a, with a vision of the impossible in a sense, and right. this movement is, is no exception. So, you know, uh, what yesterday would have seemed uh, 
laughable today mm-hmm. seems is, is, is on the table. Um, right. Defunding the police, abolition of prisons. Yep. Some of the demands are structural and others are more symbolic, like the tearing down of, of, of statues or mm-hmm. the call for black to be capitalized, um, uh, you know, and or various other kind of uh, symbolic measures. Uh, what do you see as really at the core, though, of the movement? I understand that it's a it's a protest wave that's still kind of gaining mm-hmm. a sense of cohesion as a political and intellectual movement. But what to you are really the kind of the central demands uh, aside from an end to police brutality and so on? What 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 do you think defines this movement? I think people are trying to build out what it would mean for Black Lives to Matter. And that is a combination of the structural and the symbolic. Um, And so structurally, and this is what Black movements always do, it obliterates the prevailing consensus that Black deprivation is either just natural and a part of our landscape and is inexplicable and confusing and ultimately the product of Black communities and Black families themselves. The kind of culture of poverty argument that, you, that you've that you critiqued. Yeah. Right. That, you know, was just as prevalent in the Obama administration as it is ignored the condition of Black people in the, the, the Trump administration. So when Obama chastises Black families for as to whether or not they read to their children, are they uh, eating junk food and watching too much television, All of that work to preserve the space for this discussion that Black people bear responsibility for the conditions in Black neighborhoods. And the movement, as it did in the 1960s, when the same kind of discussion uh, was happening, and as it does every time it explodes, forces a reckoning with the forces of uh, of racism, of discrimination, uh, of exclusion and inequality in American society. And it forces the U.S. to look at what it has done to African-Americans historically and in this moment in ways that outside of moments of extreme crisis are just ignored. Uh, and so people now are saying, these, this is what structural inequality looks like. And this is what must be done to repair the damage that has been done to to African-American communities. And it's it's spelling that out. Well, this is actually one of the kind of one of the striking aspects of not not just the movement, but of um, the American political conversation, if you will, that the idea of 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 structural racism, which not only conservatives, but uh, so-called liberals had for a long time dismissed, right. um, is is back. It's widely accepted. I mean, obviously, it's not accepted by all Americans, but it's increasingly accepted. You know, I was uh, struck reading uh, your your book from hashtag Black Lives Matter to uh, Black Liberation by the juxtaposition of two quotations. One is from Lyndon B. Johnson, and the other is from from Obama. Now, Johnson, of course, was notoriously a Southern racist, and yet he presided over the the, uh, Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. And his quote is a very powerful uh, statement about structural racism rooted in slavery and Jim Crow. And uh, the Obama quote reflects a kind of culture of poverty analysis, which places the blame on black people themselves. How did we 
get from Johnson to Obama, in your view? Well, I think that part of what Johnson's comments reflect, and that it's from his uh, commencement address at Howard University uh, in 1965. And so by June of 1965, the U.S. has already had a taste of its first hot summer. Watts. Well, no, Watts would come later uh, in August of 1965. But the previous summer in, in 1964 in Harlem and Cleveland, uh, uh, Philadelphia and other Rochester, New York and other smaller uh, skirmishes. I think also the year prior, Birmingham in, in 1963, some see as really the first urban rebellion of the of the 1960s. But more importantly, it was a march on Washington that people forget. It was the March on Washington for freedom and jobs that uh, the civil rights movement, more than any, uh, was making the connection between racism and discrimination and inequality uh, experienced by African-Americans, that it was explaining to the American public why Black people were disproportionately poor, why Black people lived in the disproportionately substandard housing, that you couldn't understand that without understanding the centrality of racism, not just in the South, but as an American phenomenon. And at the time, the movement had strong links to the labor movement as well. Absolutely, uh, which was one of the organizing forces uh, for the 1963 March on Washington. And so Lyndon Johnson understood this and was responding to this and, and was forced because of the movement to grapple with the, uh, the structural aspects of Black uh, inequality in a way that Barack Obama um, had not been forced to deal with. And in in fact, as a Black political, a Black elected uh, official, was able to really articulate this uh, idea of Black domestic dysfunction and the perceptions of the broken Black family or a broken Black culture um, in ways that uh, in the 21st century, no white politician would really think about doing in the stark terms that Obama did. Wasn't that almost a price of admission for Obama, too? I mean, he had to, for example, dissociate himself from Jeremiah Wright. Yeah, I think yes and no. I think that this has become such an ingrained, almost knee-jerk response in politics that they perhaps convince themselves that this is what they must do. But I think that Sanders in particular points to the reality that there's a different way. I think some of the success of the uh, socialists running on Democratic Party tickets says that there is a different way, that you don't actually have to run on racism to be successful, especially in the Democratic Party. I want to actually ask you a question about Sanders, because um, Sanders came under some criticism for not placing racism at the center of his analysis of American society. For a lot of criticism. Right. A fair amount of criticism. And and, um, he tried to address that. But Sanders was the subject of a piece that ran a couple of days ago by uh, the conservative uh, columnist for The Times, Ross Douthat. And uh, Douthat argued that, that Sanders had suffered his second defeat uh, with the emergence of, of the protests 
and essentially, uh, Douthat argued that these protests reflect the the victory of anti-racist politics over a politics organized around social class that, that Bernie had promoted. My sense from the demonstrations that I attended and from what I've been hearing from people is that the lines between these politics are actually as fluid as they were in 1960, at the 1963 March on Washington, and that Sanders, in fact, is about the only candidate who's routinely invoked at these demonstrations. So I'm rather skeptical. I wonder what you think. Do you think Bernie still speaks to this moment? Oh, more now than ever. I mean, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker that said reality had endorsed um, Bernie Sanders, And I think that that still uh, holds true. I think in some uh, ways the the protests uh, have gone beyond Sanders as well, uh, particularly on the question of defunding the police. But I think that all of the what are perceived as the strange division between race and class, these are the key questions that are facing ordinary people, black people in particular, the question about health care. The idea that uh, we live in a country where healthcare uh, is based on largely based on employment status is absurd, and the the absurdity is even more apparent now. And Black people have been the biggest proponents for Medicare for all across all other demographics. So the idea that African Americans are only interested in quote anti racist politics and not class politics is functionally illiterate. Uh, It means that you don't actually uh, understand that the vast majority of Black people are working class. Um, And so these issues about uh, raising the minimum wage, about health care, about redistributing, because defunding the police is about the the redistribution of wealth in our society. We should throw defund the military uh, into that mix as well, that these are class issues that intersect with with race in this country because black people are disproportionately poor and working class. You know, I read in the in the Times the other day that the income disparity between black and white men hasn't changed since 1950. You know, and you recently published a chart having to do with income disparities. Um, now, everyone in principle can get behind the idea that the police have to stop killing black people, but addressing the roots of oppression addressing unemployment, substandard housing, yep. poor health care, the things that you were mentioning just a moment ago, uh, attacking uh, what you've called uh, racial capitalism. This is another matter. This is, it, this, is, is, it, is, this is not something that the corporations piggybacking on Black Lives Matter or, or states declaring you know, Juneteenth a holiday can necessarily get behind. So is there, do, you, do you think there's a, uh, also a danger that the movement's energies could be co-opted by groups that have a, a much more truncated understanding of what this movement is about. Well, this is how Martin Luther King went from being admired and respected into the in the United States to hated and despised by the time he was assassinated. Um, because as he pointed out, ending Jim Crow didn't really cost anything. Taking the signs down and, you know, saying that that, that Black people were free to come and go uh, as they pleased in public didn't cost anything. But when the focus of the movement shifts to the North, this is when you have to talk about the redistribution of hundreds of billions of dollars. Because if you're serious about ending housing discrimination, 
if you're serious about ending job discrimination, because job discrimination is not just we don't like black people, so we're going to hold them down. It's about that wage disparity. It is about getting uh, work for cheap for certain groups of people while still uh, charging them the full amount to live in our society. And so if you're going to change that dynamic, then you're talking about a massive redistribution of wealth and resources um, in this country. Uh, And that's when the discussion usually comes uh, to a screeching halt. And so, you know, Amazon can put Black Lives Matter on a masthead on its website, but unless that is actually matched by paid time off, by uh, robust health insurance and other benefits, and by an actual living wage of $25 or $30 an hour, then it's all just window dressing. And you can say that to every corporation that is talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, people taking knees, and all of this kind of empty, hollow, symbolic bullshit that doesn't actually cost them anything. But when it comes to changing the institutional practice that constitutes this systemic racism that everyone is talking about now, then that's where we see whether, you know, this is a serious effort or whether this is a photo op uh, at, a, at a press conference. And, and that is also what is so important about where this movement is um, right now, is that uh, at the center of it are these kinds of demands uh, around redistribution that are trying to, as I said earlier, build out what it would mean uh, for Black lives uh, to matter in this country. Kanga, in the late 60s, mid-60s, late 60s, early 70s, there were you know, important figures, leaders, who were articulating the kind of vision uh, that you're describing, this expansive vision of, of political change, economic redistribution, a, a, a different non-imperialist foreign policy, and so on. MLK, Malcolm X, uh, the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. you could, you know, numerous people. I'm not saying that there are no leaders in the protest wave that we're seeing, but I would say that it's a much more horizontal movement. There, there are not as many charismatic leaders of the kind who once defined the civil rights movement or the black power movement for that matter. In what ways is this a strength? In what ways is it a potential liability as it was in the Arab Spring, for example? I think that the strength of this is that it really is beginning to have a kind of mass character um, in which I think people will be challenged about how to, you know, democratically uh, proceed. Like, how, how do we figure out once the obstacles become clear, you know, once we start to move beyond saying Black Lives Matter and kneeling in the street with protesters, how do we actually change things? Then it becomes clearer what type of organizing and organizations that we need. And so uh, it seems now, I think, without having the quote-unquote charismatic leaders, is that this is a, a, a movement that anyone can involve themselves in and to figure out uh, how to plug in. And I think that's good. And there are a lot of organizations that have been building over the last several years. I think that is why 
these types of demands have been advanced so so easily. I think if if there's I don't know that there's a particular drawback about having a figurehead. I mean, I can't I can't think of a particular drawback. I know that those types of individuals and and organizations that became seen as the the leadership of the movement, the contributions that they made were being able to uh, synthesize a lot of different kind of information to really help narrate publicly what was happening to African-Americans, to help narrate a list uh, of demands and to really be able to articulate that publicly, which I think was important within the movement itself that became attractive and helped to pull people uh, into organizing, into being a part of a, of, a, of a social movement. And so I think that doesn't have to be wrapped up in a, in a single individual. And I think over the last several weeks that we've seen that same kind of articulation happening across the United States where people uh, who have been given platforms in, in writing, who have been given platforms in visual media, have helped to articulate to a larger American public what this is actually about and why is it happening now. And we can measure its impactfulness by uh, the rapid shift in in polling. And 71% of Americans think that racism is a problem in the U.S. That's a huge breakthrough. That's not only because of the demonstrations themselves, but it's also because of people who have been in this work for several years now being given a, a, a platform in several different kind of media right. uh, to be able to explain what is happening. I, that actually brings me to my, my next question, because I wanted to talk to you about, about the, the cutting edge uh, of critique, the, the intellectual work that um, has been done that, that, in a sense, has prefigured mm-hmm. Uh, some of the themes uh, of this movement. And I'm, I'm thinking about uh, work that has focused on policing and, and mass incarceration, uh, including your work. Now, obviously, the question of police brutality, of over-policing, has always been a great concern, along with, and we can talk about this later, perhaps a more complicated and troubled question of under-policing, because a lot of black people have felt their lives aren't even protected right? That the mm-hmm. police are just there to protect white lives. Um, now, Du Bois, you know, once said that there's nothing easier than to accuse a black man of crime. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a, this is, a, this concern has been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And as, and as you've pointed out, uh, the origins of the police can be partly traced to, to, to slave patrols. Uh, still, it's, it's, I think it's hard to ignore the conceptual revolution that's been brought about by works like Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow or Khalil Gibran Muhammad's Condemnation mm-hmm. of Blackness and, and the abolitionist work of Angela Davis and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's often, you know, sort of sneeringly said that, that you know, the millennials only have attitudes, not ideas. But it seems to me that we're seeing a movement that's inspired by scholarship in the in, much as the 60s New Left was inspired by you know, William Appleman Williams, C. Wright Mills, Marcuse. I mean, do you see these works as critical to the thinking and imagination of this movement? Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think that this work has helped to inform a generation of 
activists and organizers, many of whom were ex-students who were uh, kind of immersed in this kind of, of scholarship that had always conceived of itself in a certain respect as public, as not just scholarship for the sake of, of scholarship. I mean, the particularly in the, the field of, of uh, abolition, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore was an organizer and went from organizing into uh, graduate school. Yeah. yeah uh, and took those ideas that were shaped from uh, her experiences in organizing as a member of a, a, of a community and developed them further in, in graduate school, but never with the intention of it staying there in the academy. I mean, this is your story. This is your story too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a, I was an organizer. I went to grad school, but also, you know, for me was to uh, learn more about the the issues that I was most interested in um, as a way to be uh, even more effective in trying to uh, understand, explain, learn from what was happening in this country as, as a way to challenge the, the status quo. Angela Davis, obviously, was, a, was an academic, then put in prison and continued, but uh, has always seen her, uh, quote-unquote, scholarship as part of a larger liberation struggle for the freedom of Black people. But really, you know, Angela Davis exemplifies a kind of internationalist political ethos that is important in training a new generation of organizers and, and activists and, and concerned uh, people in the world. And so I think that um, the immersion in those kinds of politics uh, has helped, again, shape the people who have been organizing um, around these issues and has meant that very quickly um, within this particular iteration of these struggles, very well-defined, articulated demands around defunding, introducing the idea of, of abolition uh, over the last several years, um, has meant that these are no longer just strange, abstract, marginalized ideas that are seen as fringe, but are, are actually becoming part of uh, a mainstream discussion uh, about what we do. And that, that's a tremendous breakthrough. It is. And I want to ask you about... Um you know, every every movement looks for a kind of a usable past, and as, as you've just mm-hmm. pointed out, this is a movement that has a rich sense of its own of its own history and of its of its ancestors. And you edited a, a beautiful book about some of them called "How to Get Free." So I'm wondering, can you tell me a bit about this group, the Combahee River Collective, and and why they matter today? Why their concerns resonate? with what we're seeing in the streets? Well, the the Combahee River Collective was actually a small group of Black feminists that formed in the early 1970s. Um, The way that they describe it um, is that there was no space for them in the left as it was constituted then. Within Black-led organizations, nationalism organized around strong male personalities uh, was the kind of prevailing uh, organizational model. And then feminist organizations were uh, dominated by liberals and white women who did not see the particularities 
uh, of the experiences uh, of Black women. And so Black feminism develops as its own uh, current with its own organizations, uh, its own politics. And Combahee, I think, is, is most known because it's so clearly and, and decisively defined why Black feminism was important in a, uh, a statement that they drafted, three of the members drafted uh, for a publication in 1977. And what, what's interesting uh, about the drafting of this publication is that it was solicited by... Zyla Eisenstein, right? Yeah, um, who was putting together uh, a reader on socialist feminism. Um, and so it spoke to uh, the kind of relationship that the women of Combahee had uh, developed. And I think part of what is interesting is that they certainly uh, saw themselves as part of the left, you know, and not as just a feminist organization uh, out in the world, but they saw themselves as part of the left. And I think uh, the power of the Combahee statement is is still quite apparent. I mean, this was a statement that coined the term identity politics. And what they meant uh, by that was the process by which Black women became uh, political, you know, that as, as living as, as people who suffered all sorts of oppression, uh, that this was fundamental to the development of their politics. And so when they talked about the personal being political, that wasn't a retreat uh, from political life into the internal that was saying that because of the racism and sexism experienced by Black women in their personal lives, that is what laid at the foundation um, of their radical politics. It's a remarkable statement. And, mm-hmm. and I think that um, what I also found striking about um, the formulation uh, of identity politics is that it, it uh, hardly rules out and in fact, advocates uh, alliances, coalition building, solidarity. Absolutely. I mean, it was not the kind of identity politics that um, today's critics... It's not exclusive. No. It's, and It's not exclusionary. It, it is a bridge into other people's struggles, but on their own terms. Right. It's saying, don't say we can build alliances as long as we don't talk about the difficult things or the hard things. It's we have to the, the strength of these alliances are based on solidarity, that you accept our agenda that we have set. It seemed almost I mean, the definition of, of, of identity politics seems almost like an epistemological stance. In other words, if we're going to understand mm-hmm. oppression, we have to start from where we are, from our experiences. Yes. But the point isn't to end there. It's right. to branch out from there. And, and I, right. I was struck by something that Barbara Smith, uh, one mm-hmm. of the founders um, one of the authors of the statement, and and I think I believe she was one of the uh, the founders of Black Women's Studies as well. Yes, absolutely. She says that um, we didn't mean that if you're not the same as us, you're nothing. We were not saying that we didn't care about anybody who wasn't exactly like us. One of the things I used to say is that it would be really boring only to do political work with people who are exactly like me. People of different backgrounds in different places in a social structure actually at times come together. Yes, and I think that you know. In this movement today, it seems to me, and I think this really began or became more visible uh, with Black Lives Matter, is that 
we're seeing a kind of intersectional anti-racism in which women and also uh, queer people are acquiring more prominence without hiding, concealing, repudiating their identities. They're foregrounding those identities. And so it's it's an interesting shift, too, from what we saw in the past with, you know, Bayard Rustin, for Mm -hmm. example, or Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hammer, uh, uh, who in a sense are the the godfathers, the the godmothers Mm -hmm. rather, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, of this movement. Would you say that this is also a kind of distinguishing feature of this new politics, the fact that black women and and queer black people have been taking such a prominent role? I think that two things. One, it is, you know, at, at the height of the movement in the 60s, it was still before uh, really the gay liberation movement had exploded through certain aspects of institutional homophobia um, in the United States, which really hasn't been realized in significant ways until the 21st century. And so I think that is part of what has happened here. But I also think that the more immediate kind of foremothers of this movement come out of the Incite uh, Conference of 1999-2000, where this kind of politics was put forward, a a politics that embraced radical feminism, uh, that was anti-capitalist, that was queer uh, unto itself, and that had abolition politics um, at its center. And I think that we have underestimated the centrality of that gathering and of insight as a place uh, where these politics were developed, contemplated, de- uh, debated, and nurtured. So this was kind of an incubator, and now we're seeing the the results. Absolutely, and you know, I think really, uh, his, his historian Barbara Ransby uh, is one of the few people. Uh, to write about this kind of earlier history in her book, Making All Black Lives Matter, which I think is is important to, that those, those gatherings really helped to develop a cadre of organizers who had these kinds of politics at their, at their core. And I think that development, uh, along with the kind of, you know, I wrote about this in my book and how in, in Ferguson, for example, uh, one out of, I think, every six black men had simply disappeared out of the census. And mo- most of that disappearance had been attributed to premature death. Hmm. And I do think that the uh, particular obliteration of black men, either through death or imprisonment, has necessarily opened a space where black women could politically occupy and not be forced uh, to defer to male um, leadership. And I think we continue to see that dynamic. Um, You know, in addition to adept organizing skills and uh, developing political authority, I think that it also has uh, some roots in this kind of demographic or sociological factors as well. You've been a very powerful champion of political solidarity mm-hmm. and, and of developing coalitions. And, you know, along with this sort of emergence of anti-racist consciousness that we've seen among 
among young whites and in a different way among, among, among Asians. There's also been a kind of, among some, a, a questioning of the meaning of solidarity. To some extent, it's informed by, by Afro-pessimism mm-hmm. in, its, in its white liberal version. And I, I want to read you a passage from uh, an interview that Ruthie Gilmore, mm-hmm. uh, the abolitionist advocate, gave with Paul Gilroy recently. Mm. She said, there's a bit of a divergence these last few weeks between what you just described, a different future for human beings, as against a path. It worries me very much, which is that in recapitulating a certain kind of apartheid thinking in the name of undoing the effects of apartheid in the world scale. And by that, I mean the tendency that's got me worried is one in which people are insisting that only certain demographics of people are authorized to speak about, speak from, or speak against certain kinds of horrors. And other people have already existing assignable jobs based on their demographic, let's call it a caste system, that they're supposed to do. So white people are supposed to fix white supremacy and so on and so forth. This path, which is actually a pretty strong path, doesn't excite me. I'm 70 years old. I'm done with it. I've been done with it for a long time. The path, however, which some of the young Black Lives Matter people named five years ago in that year of uprising in the U.S. after the death of Mike Brown and Freddie Gray, the one in which they said quite simply when Black Lives Matter, everybody lives better. That's the path that's of interest to me. Absolutely. No, I. we can't win with the idea that only Black people can fight for Black people. White people should fight for working class white people. Latin people, uh, Latinos uh, should only fight for themselves. We can't, we can't win that way. And we have a lifetime of experience over the previous century that is proof of that. And I like to think of myself as an Afro-optimist. I think that the Black struggle in this country has been a source of inspiration um, for people around the world because this is the most exploitative, the most oppressive country, just simply because it has the resources to be different. You know, this is not a struggling uh, republic that has no money uh, and resorts to brute force in order to eke out an existence. This is the richest country in the history of the world where its ruling class deliberately sets poor and working class people in opposition to each other to maintain wealth at the top of our society. And we acquiesce to that politically by reinforcing the lines of division that they have drawn in the first place. And so we have to think about solidarity as not Uh, an exercise in finding the least contentious issue around which to organize. So that's not what we are arguing for. We are arguing for an informed solidarity based on an understanding of the oppression of Black people and a rejection of it, an understanding of the oppression and exploitation of immigrant labor in the United States and a rejection of it. And that's hard. It is hard. But there's no other way. There's no shortcut. There's no way to circumvent the need for what Combahee talked about as coalition building and the need for what is actually playing out in the streets right now, which is a multiracial rebellion uh, against capitalism and the excesses of it. And so people want to be in a movement. People want to be a part of an effort to transform this country. And no one should be told that you can't be a part of it. 
you know? And so to me, that's part of what it means to democratize our movements, uh, to open them up and to struggle, you know? We have to struggle with each other and we can't have this kind of sacrosanct approach to politics where you don't get to say the wrong thing, you don't get to make a mistake, and if you do, that you're banished from organizing. Because the reality is if that is the standard that we are creating, then we'll never have a mass movement of ordinary people who make those mistakes and say those things all the time. And so if it's you and your 12 friends who you know, had your American studies seminar and your women's studies seminar and you figured out what all the language is, then that's great and good luck. But if we're actually going to build a movement of the masses who are affected by this, then we have to have some grace. Then we have to listen to people. We have to understand what their struggles are. And we have to find a way to knit ourselves together into a force that can actually fight for the world that we want. And that's hard. And it's much harder than just saying, you people go to the back because you haven't experienced what it's like to be called, you know, the N-word. We're not going to get anywhere with that. And we have to have a different vision of politics to fight for the kind of world that we want. Uh, Kianga, that was really eloquently put, and I think it's a good place for us to to stop, and I hope that we'll be able to talk again. This has been uh, such a pleasure and an honor. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the LRB podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. In the current issue of the LRB, you'll find Amiya Srinivasan on pronouns, James Meek on the history of the World Health Organization, Alison Light on Charles Booth's London Poverty Maps, and much more. You can read all of that online now at lrb.co.uk. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen.